Well, good morning to you. Thank y'all so much for being here. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and today we're going to be looking specifically at verses 16 and 17. And because I'm addicted to chapstick, I feel inclined to put it on right now because my lips are very chapped. So excuse me for looking very feminine for a moment. <laughs> Romans 1, 16 and 17. And as you're turning there, as we always say, if you're here as a guest... If you're watching online right now, if you're listening to our podcast later on, yes, as a church, we have a podcast with all of our sermons on it that you can go find it anywhere you listen to podcasts at Battleground Community Church. Uh, just search that and you'll find it there. Um, but if you're listening, thank y'all so much for being here. Uh, thank you so much for taking a few moments out of your week to worship with us. Today we're here to hear about Jesus, hear about his good news. Um, so yeah, thank y'all so much. If you're there with me at Romans chapter 1 and you've if you're both willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Verse 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Can we pray? So, Father, we bow our heads humbly before you at this moment. Because, Lord, you have given us an incredible word. You have given us the very prescription that we all need to be right in your sight. And, Lord, we thank you that this morning... We get to sing, that we get to hear about the cross of Jesus Christ. But I pray for every soul in this room, every soul listening, that we would be reminded that we should be confident in this message, that we should never be ashamed. So, Father, embolden our spirits this morning. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of what you've called us to do. Thank you for what you're going to do in this place. Holy Spirit, we lead and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. So uh, all this week, uh, I've been thinking about things in my life that I'm proud of. Um, Maybe because uh, I'm a sentimentalist, but it's my parents' 40th wedding anniversary today. So uh, with all that in mind, uh, I've just been thinking about, obviously, like all of us, we have a laundry list of things that we're proud of, right? But one thing that I've been raised to believe and one thing that I'm raised to be proud of is my family. I'm proud to be a Moffat. I'm proud to be a part of our heritage, our tradition. I know that sounds kind of narcissistic, ego-driven, arrogant, uh, but let me explain what I mean. Like many of you, from birth, I was raised to be proud of the name Moffat. You put your name in that. You might be proud of being a Reigns. You might be proud of being a Fulbright. It's something that we've been raised to believe. It's, it's, it's representing our heritage, our very family being, right? To be a Moffat means something to me. And that something, as I've been raised to believe, is very special. It carries this weight of life, a way of working, a way of thinking, a way of believing. It carries a sense of respect for our past, but also a high confidence in our present and future. 
It's something that I wear proudly, right? It's something that's an extreme honor to be a part of. It's something that I'm already instilling to my own family. I tell Esther all the time she's blessed to be a Moffat. The point is this. All of us have things in our lives that we're proud of. For me, it's my family. For you, it could be your children. It could be your job. It could be you name it. Whatever that thing is that we're proud of, it impacts the way we live. It impacts the way we act. It impacts the way we think. It impacts what we do and how we do it. We wear these things, these things that we're proud of, as a badge of honor. We live for these things. Paul here in Romans chapter 1 16 through 17 tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that he is extremely proud of. Last week in verses 14 and 15, Paul says that he is both obligated and eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all peoples. And here in verse 16, he continues his thought by saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word for could also be translated because. So Paul is saying that he's obligated and eager to preach the gospel to all peoples because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing, discussing the idea of being driven. What's driving you? What's driving Paul here in Romans? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 16. It's because Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and since Paul is not ashamed of this gospel, he is both obligated and eager to share it with other people. You see that connection. Now, let's, but let's just think about this statement for a moment. Think about the context of Paul. Because I think this is, this is so ap applicable for all of us. Who's Paul? At this point in time, He's been persecuted, he's been beaten, he's been threatened, he's been mocked, he's been rebuked. There's a story in Acts where he's literally stoned to death, drug out by a mob, stoned to death, and he gets back up and he goes right back into the city and starts preaching again. I mean, this dude was crazy. But that's Paul. That's what he's going through because of the gospel. But not just that. He's dealing with these false rumors about him and his message, that his message is a fake gospel. It's not true. It's contrary to what God is actually saying, how we could be saved. Therefore, we can't trust Paul. He's dealing with that. But listen to that. Think about that and read verse 16 again. He says, even with all of that, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Like, how powerful is that? This is what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter what the world does to me. It doesn't matter how many times I'm rejected, how many times I'm mocked or accused, threatened or persecuted. It doesn't matter if I'm even killed because I am not ashamed of this gospel. I am proud of this message. Paul's not going to waver. And he is obligated and eager to go no matter the cost. So this is where verses 16 to 17 comes into play. And what 
many commentators believe as the two most important verses of the Bible. The two central verses of the book of Romans and actually the two verses that sparked Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation, which we could say shaped history. The Apostle Paul here is sharing with us the reasons as to why he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for the rest of our time, I just want us to look at two main reasons why Paul was confident in the gospel and ultimately why we should be confident in the gospel as well. So here are two reasons why we should be confident in the gospel. First, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Go with me again to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. uh, Now notice what Paul says here. He says the gospel is the power. The gospel just doesn't tell us about God's power, though it does that perfectly. It says the gospel is the power itself. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I heard one of my favorite songwriters say it like this. A song can't save nobody. A church can't save nobody. We can't save nobody. No, the power is in the name of Jesus. It's the message itself. It's the gospel that saves. In the gospel, God defeats death. He reverses the curse. He vanquishes evil. He crushes the devil. He cleanses sin. He gives life. He forms love. He unites people. He extends his ultra-powerful grace that results in salvation. The gospel powerfully transforms and redeems the believer. We are walking billboards of that truth, amen? It powerfully delivers us from the bondage and cost of sin and rescues us who are wandering rebels. That's the power of God. That's the gospel. And listen, that's the message you and I have been entrusted with. A few weeks back, I was, uh, had a late day here at the office, and I was leaving. I was ready to get home and see the family, ready to cook supper. And uh, I was doing one of my fatherly duties, which is go pick up diapers and pull-ups. And so I had to stop at Walmart really quick. So if you go to Walmart here in Kings Mountain, the diaper section is right beside the frozen section of the fruit. And so I was about to go down that aisle, and, and I was, again, I was in a hurry. And I'm not too much of a judge. Well, yes, I am. I judge people how they look a lot of times. <laughs> But this guy in front of me had earplugs in his ears, and he had long hairs coming out of his ears, and which I was like, okay, I'm not going to judge you for that, but it's a little strange. Well, he walks there in front of me in the aisle where I was going, and, and uh, being a good father, I wanted to figure out something I could also get the baby to eat later on for the week. So I stopped at the frozen section, found something that she might would like. I grabbed the food, and I noticed that the creepy guy was there in front of me, not moving. He was kind of like staring at me, and I said, okay. This is about to happen. So he starts talking to me about the food, but then he quickly starts talking about Jesus. I says, well, okay, it's a fellow brother. 
Well, for the next 45 minutes, he finds out that I'm a pastor. He finds out that I'm in a Baptist church. So for the next 45 minutes, hear me, 45 minutes, he tries to prove to me why all Protestant churches are all in sin, that we're all going to hell, and that we are not children of God. For 45 minutes. It's about, and let me articulate, 45 minutes means he, he spoke for 44 of those minutes, and I just listened. So by the end of this thing, again, I'm hungry. I'm ready to go cook. I'm ready to be home with my family. And so I, I said, okay, man, I, I really got to go. I got to go pick up these pull-ups. I got to go. I said, but let me ask you this question as I leave. I said, man, what's the gospel? He looked at me. He got kind of mad. He said, well, I've been telling you the gospel. I said, no, sir, you've been giving me a history lesson about why I'm wrong. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel's a great commission. No, sir, that's not the gospel. And he said two of the scariest things I've ever heard. He said, well, the gospel is more than just technicality. Then he looked at dead in my face. He's right here, and his breath stinks too, guys. That's rough. He's right here. He says, the gospel is more than the cross, my friend. At this point, I'm bullying. The best receipt is coming out of me. <laughs> I just look at him and say, no, sir. The gospel is Christ crucified and raised. And those who repent and believe will be saved. That's the gospel. I said, you have a good day. I'm going to go cook. And he starts being hostile. He's yelling at me. That's the false gospel. That's the false gospel. Can I tell you the truth here? There is no gospel, therefore no power outside of a bloody and risen Savior. That's the gospel. That's the power. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, Caleb, I'm going fast. Verse 1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not, come, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not impossible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So what, notice, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was crucified and raised, is our banner. It's why we lift it up above everything else, because it is the very power of God. And notice the text. It's the power of God to save everyone who believes. Again, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So two things I want to point out here. First, the gospel is God's power to save. Now, I know that sounds pretty similar to what I just said, but don't miss this important point. The gospel is God's power to save, which means that the work of salvation is not based on anything that we can do ourselves, but it's completely and absolutely based on everything God does for us. It's not about our work here. It's not about your work, not about my work. It's about his work. The gospel is the means by which God is powerfully working out the salvation of of all peoples. Philippians 1 6 says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day 
of Jesus Christ. So in the gospel, God from start to finish is saving the one who believes. In the gospel, God justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies, which means he is making us right in his sight. He's transforming us into the image of Jesus. And one day we're going to be perfect and complete in his righteousness when he comes back for us and glorifies us. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says this. And notice God's power throughout this text. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Notice who's doing the work. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Martin Lloyd-Jones emphasizing God's power in Romans 8, 28 through 30 says this. It's the great power whereby God predestinates. It's the electing power of God. It's the powerful call of God. It's the strength and power of God's justification. It's the power whereby God regenerates men. It's the power whereby God sanctifies us. It's the power whereby and we're within God preserves us. It's the power whereby God will glorify us. Can I paraphrase what he's saying? It's God who does the work, not us. It's not about what you can do. It's not about what I can do. The gospel is what God has and is doing alone for our salvation. I love the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Verse 2 says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin cannot atone. God must save and God alone. Second thing I want to point out is that the gospel is for all peoples. Again, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. So this gospel message, this power of God is a global message. Paul's reference here to the Jew first and also to the Greek is a historical reality to both the history of salvation, but also to the early church's missional strategy to the lost. Jesus in John 4 tells the woman at the well that salvation comes from the Jews. Acts 1, he tells his disciples to go to Jerusalem first, then to Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world to share the gospel, and we see this kind of being played out in Paul's even mission strategy. Because every time Paul goes into a city, he first goes to a synagogue. And after his dealings, most cases negative dealings with the Jewish people, he then focuses attention to the Gentiles. Here's the point of Romans 1.16. This gospel message is a global message for all peoples. All people, whether Jew or Greek have the same exact need, which is salvation through Jesus. The gospel isn't limited by race, 
gender, economics, geographics, linguistics, or society. This gospel, the power is the power of God to save all peoples, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, no matter where they are from, as long as they believe. If you turn a few pages of Romans chapter 10, Paul again emphasizing this same truth. Down to verse 11. It says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, we have a global message that declares that God is in the life-changing, life-saving business. And anyone who repents and puts their faith in Jesus will be saved. So first, the first reason that we should be confident in the gospel is because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul gives us a second reason. And that second reason is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Go with me to verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And here in verse 17, he explains how this is so. Verse 17 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation because it reveals the righteousness of God. Another way to say that is that it reveals how we can be made righteous in God's sight. So our question is, how does this gospel reveal the righteousness of God? Well, at least in four ways. It reveals God's righteous character. It reveals all people's unrighteousness. It reveals how God provides his righteousness for us. And it reveals how we receive God's righteousness. I'm going to steer off my manuscript for a moment because I was just kind of getting ready for this morning for my own spirit. And the Lord just led me to this text. I was looking for something else, and he led this to me. And I'm going to just invite you to turn to Isaiah 45. Because when I read this, I was like, God, you are so good. Because this, this is exactly what Paul is saying. Down to verse 18. Now, Caleb's going to have the NLT. That's what I'm going to read out of. But you can follow along in the ESV as well or whatever you have. This is what Isaiah says. Verse 18. Or Isaiah 45, 18. For the Lord is God. And he created the heavens and earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. I, the Lord, speak only what is true and declare only what is right. Listen to what he says. Gather together and come, you fugitives from surrounding nations. 
What fools they are who carry around their wooden idols. Pray to gods that cannot save. Consult together. Argue your case. Get together and decide what to say. Who made these things known so long ago? What idol ever told you they would happen? Was it not I, the Lord? For there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Listen to what it says. Let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God and there is no other. Now, I don't know what that that text was for this morning. I just felt inclined to read that to you. Because this is what Paul is saying. This is what the gospel reveals, that there is a perfectly holy, righteous God in heaven who established everything in the universe. And his standard for righteousness is the very standard by which all of us are seen to hold up to. Psalm 24, verse 3, kind of gets to the heart of the question of our existence. It says, who shall ascend the hill of this God who is righteous and holy above all things? Who shall stand in his holy place? That's the question we all have to ask ourselves. How can we have a right relationship before the God of heaven? How can we be righteous in his sight? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 4 of Psalm 24. Those with clean hands, with a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is perfect, who does not swear deceitfully. So in order to stand in God's presence, he demands perfection. His standard of righteousness is up here. And he says, if you want to stand before me, you must be up here with me. But that leads us to our problem, doesn't it? Because verse 4 is impossible for us as people. There's not a single one of us in this room, in this entire world, who has clean hands and a pure heart in and of ourselves. Paul says, if you turn over to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So church, this sin problem that we have is not just some external issue. But meaning, just because we do bad things, we're in sin. It's much deeper than that. Our sin problem is internal. Genesis 3, we inherited this sin from our forefather, Adam. All of us. If you have kids, you fully are aware that we are all in sin. And not just because the kid's disobedience, because, man, the hope just comes out of me when I get really upset when Esther never listens. Like, well, you just listen. That's sin. All of us have this problem. We have this imputed sin because of Adam's disobedience. We can't fix ourselves. We keep the picture here of Psalm 24. 
none of us can climb up the hill of the Lord on our, in ourselves. We don't have the capabilities of saving ourselves. The Bible says that we are all children of wrath by nature. Because we have disobeyed God and His perfect righteousness, because we have disobeyed His perfect law, it demands that we must die because of our sin. That's who we are as people. But praise God. Though we can't climb up the hill ourselves, though we can't make ourselves right in God's sight by ourselves, here's the good news. God came down the hill for us. He came down the hill for us. Though we are unrighteous in ourselves and unable to keep his law perfectly, the gospel reveals that God came and provided his righteousness for us. Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5, you've heard this passage many times. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Lloyd-Jones' summary of this passage is just perfect. He says, and it happens in this way. The Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied the law of God on our behalf perfectly in every sense. He was made of a woman, made under the law, and having thus been under the law, he rendered a perfect obedience to the law. He kept it in every jot and tittle. He failed it in no respect. He fulfilled God's law perfectly, completely, and absolutely. Not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law unto all sin and, to, and upon all sins. He took your guilt in mind upon himself and he bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted upon him, and so he was honored the law completely, positively, and negatively, actively, and passively. There is nothing further the law can command. He has satisfied it all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Me and John have been in a Bible study uh, through the Gospel of Mark. This is another podcast, a little quick plug. We have a podcast called Bible Life that you can listen to anywhere you find podcasts. I think that's the most publicity we'll have there, John. <laughs> but we're going through a study through Mark right now. And a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus has healed the paralytic. Now, you know that story. Paralytic in that day is uh, an outcast. Simple way to say it. To touch them would be forbidden. I mean, if you touch them, you're kicked out as well. In the story, the leopard comes before Jesus. He says, will you heal me? And Jesus does the most unthinkable thing that you could do in that day. He reaches out and touches the leopard he touches him and the leopards healed perfectly completely but what's incredible is the very end of the story the leopards back into the community they welcome him with open arms he's living among the people but where's Jesus in the story he's outside in the wilderness where the man was 
Jesus now, in a lot of ways, is the outcast. He's unable to come into the community. And church, this is what happens at the cross as well. Jesus is the substitute. He's the substitute for the man. In that story, he's the substitute for us at the cross. Though Jesus is blameless, perfect, righteous, Jesus does the unthinkable. He reaches out and he touches us who are covered with guilt and shame and brokenness. He took our shame, our disgrace, our sin, our brokenness, our curse, and he went outside Jerusalem and he went to a hill called Golgotha. And there, this perfect, innocent Lamb of God was crucified on a cross in the place of us sinners. Bearing the weight of our sin, bearing uh, all that that entails in offering us forgiveness, he pays the debt we owe, he satisfies the wrath of God, and then three days later, he rises from the grave, defeating death forever. And listen, in return, Jesus does that for us. In return, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his grace. He gives us his healing. He forgives us. He accepts us. He, is, he gives us his honor, and we are now able to freely stand before God in boldness because we're covered now in Jesus' righteousness. We couldn't climb up that hill. So God came down, and he then cleans us up. He places us on his shoulders, and he carries us back up that hill himself. That's the gospel. God provided his righteousness through the gospel. And what Paul says is that the gospel reveals that we now receive this righteousness through faith. Through faith. Again, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now notice the importance of faith in the gospel. In both verses 16 and 17, the word faith or belief is used four different times. This tells us that the life of faith is all-encompassing. It's by faith that one initially receives the gift of salvation, but it's also by faith that one lives each and every day. If you turn the page over to Romans chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, what happens? His faith is counted as righteousness. So our salvation then is not based on our ability to keep the law. It's not on our ability to work our way up to heaven. No, our salvation is based on our faith in the one who fulfilled the law, who did the work for us. We are saved by grace through faith. So faith is this instrument. It's this channel through which the righteousness of Christ is given to us. And we are rendered capable of accepting it. But listen, even this faith that we have to receive God's righteousness doesn't even come from us. That's even a gift from God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8, 
For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So let me summarize all this. The faith to both hear and believe is a gift from God, which is why we are told we can't even boast about our faith. God must open our hearts and ears. That was my prayer for you this morning. That was my prayer last night when I came and prayed over every seat, that God alone would open up ears and hearts. I can't do that. Worship team can't do that. Doing communion can't do that. The Holy Spirit must open ears and hearts. God is the one who gives us this gift of faith. Listen, every aspect of salvation is completely reliant on God's powerful grace. So so from start to finish, God by his power through the gospel of Jesus Christ provides both the righteousness and faith necessary for everyone who believes to receive eternal salvation. So what? Brothers and sisters, if anything, with all this, can we just pause and just praise God for such a powerful message? Think about it. This world has a terminal illness called sin. And the church of Jesus Christ has been given the very prescription that can heal anyone who puts their trust in it. We have the most powerful message in this entire universe. Sinners can be made right in the sight of God. That's something to praise God about. That's something to be proud about. That's something to boast about. That is the message that we have been given. The simple application is this. May we never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. We have no reason to be. If you're in Christ this morning, you, like myself, again, are literal walking billboards that the power of the gospel is true. We once hated Jesus. We once had nothing to do with Jesus. But how can you explain it outside the gospel that now we love Jesus? The gospel. That's the power. That's the reality. We are walking billboards of that truth. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. We've all been changed and redeemed by this power. Therefore, why should we not be proud of this message? The gospel changed us, listen, and we know we can change other people. Paul gives us two reasons to grasp onto as to why we should never be ashamed of this gospel. The church, I must pause for just a moment to give a dire warning. I told Pastor Stephen this week, it surprised me if we were reading about not being ashamed in commentaries and studies material that they didn't mention this text. Because church, this is scary. 
if you, so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And we'll be ending here, but listen, there is a high price for not being ashamed of the gospel. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your family. Cost you your friends. It could cost you your life. But listen to me. There is a cost that is much higher, much greater for being ashamed of this gospel. Listen to Luke chapter 9, down at verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Listen to this warning. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So the practical question is this. Am I willing to pay this high price for being ashamed of Jesus in his gospel? I'm not reading this to you, not sharing this with you this morning to shame you, to to make you feel bad, to, to say that you are being ashamed. I'm just simply sharing this with you. Because listen, this is the most scary thing that we could hear. I don't, I'm reading this, thinking about this week. I don't think we even comprehend what this is actually saying. Jesus says, if you are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. Church, do you realize that the price of being ashamed of Jesus is your very soul? Feel that. Feel that weight. I mean, is being ashamed worth that? To reject Jesus, is it worth that? Eternal salvation or eternal damnation? That's the options. Church, my prayer for Battleground is that we may never be ashamed. I pray that our confidence in this gospel is absolutely contagious in every sphere of our lives. Have a hard conversation with someone you don't, who doesn't know Jesus. Confronted because you believe in Jesus at your workspace. The question is, what are you going to do with that moment? You're going to stand up for Jesus or are you going to deny? Church, may that never be said about us. May we stand boldly in the power of God into salvation. Never ashamed. May we never waver. Now stand in the boldness of Christ no matter what it might cost us in our lives. Listen, we have the greatest and most powerful message in this world. God saves sinners 
through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Therefore, like Paul, like our Lord Jesus, for the joy set before us, for the sake of the lost in the world, let us press forward with confidence, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray. So, Lord, I feel like in it on a heavy note, Lord, I believe that's important. I believe that was critical. I think that's something you want us to feel today. But, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place in just a few minutes, that we are reminded and that we have been encouraged that we have the greatest news in the world, that you save sinners through your son, Jesus. Father, in boldness this morning, may we never forget that you have shown us now through the gospel that there is a way to be right in your sight and it's through your son, Jesus. Oh God, Stir our hearts, Lord, as we learn how to share the gospel over the next few weeks. God, I pray that at the very root of all this would be our confidence in this very message. Father, I pray for the souls in this room who've never put their faith in Jesus. have never seen him at the cross bleeding dying in our place that's never seen him powerfully conquering the sting of death by rolling a tomb away but I pray for them this morning do what you're what Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, save him through your power. Lead him to repentance. Lead him to faith. Change him from the inside out because that is your power. We thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you now for the gift being able to share this good news with the world. So Father, as we stand and respond, may we just completely stand on the reality we're never going to fade. That we stand proudly and say, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Savior and He is the only way to salvation. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us?